Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Loungewear? Underwear? Those are two questions you might ask if you didn't realise that at BritishBoxers.com the answers are lounge here and under here. Um, That is that they sell super comfy loungewear and underwear made of luxury fabric. Not that they're inviting you to lounge at theirs or underneath theirs, which would be a bit weird and creepy. You name something comfy to wear. Go on, anything. No, not that. No, they don't do trousers filled with marshmallows and that wouldn't be very nice in the summer. Pyjamas, dressing gowns, hoodies, pants. Yeah, all of them. And British boxers make them superbly too. While being part of the Conscious Advertising Network, paying their staff properly like, you know, everyone should and are all nice to the planet too. Also like, well, everyone should. What I'm saying is they're properly nice people who make great underwear under there, which isn't under anything, I don't think. I've not visited, but I'm almost certain they have a factory rather than underground lair. If you go to British-Boxers.com and buy nice things, then at the checkout use the promo code PARPOLBRO15 and you'll get a nice 15% off your order and then you can lounge here, there or anywhere you blooming well like. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that is only ever on the red list, though that's the extinction one due to how quickly the topical gags on this show die out. I'm Tin and Duyeb and this week as Education Secretary and sad victim of Joker Venom, Gavin Williamson, thinks that children need longer school days to catch up learning lost over the last year. If that works, then how come most of his pals in the cabinet went to a boarding school 24-7 and are still as thick as shit? You wouldn't be blamed for having heard the government spout the term Global Britain about these last few years and conjuring up an image of the UK using Wales as its strange arm poking out of its midriff to hold hands with, um, Italy's leg, while Alaska reaches over and gropes our Norfolk bum and they all sing It's a Small World together, but England can only do the verses in English and just shout some points for all the other bits. Okay, that sounds a bit weird now I've said it out loud, but what's weirder, or perhaps exactly as you'd expect, is that the true Global Britain is one that embraces the rest of the world in the same way the Taxpayers Alliance really hates paying tax, or, you know, James Cleverly. There was a chance that by the time you've heard this episode, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, like a punch bag filled with lard, may possibly have been defeated in the Commons by Tory rebels. Tory rebels is usually a term I'd consider as ironic as Global Britain, or indeed affordable housing, or James Cleverly. But 
it would have been over cuts to foreign aid. Former Brexit secretary and man made entirely from the bits you find in your pocket if you've left a tissue in it before putting it in the wash, David Davis, is one of 30 MPs that has been opposed to the cuts to foreign aid from 0.7% of the budget to 0.5, saying that it could lead to lives lost, something that I wish he and other Conservatives had been aware of back in 2010. Children could die as a result of these cuts, said Davis, and maybe that upsets him because as someone who pushed for Brexit, hoping it would take Britain to the top of global standards, he wouldn't want other countries rising to the top charts of making kids starve and knocking us off our position. We can't have them refusing to supply children's school meals as well, or we'll stop being the special ones. Former Prime Minister and one-woman petrified forest, Theresa May, has also spoken out against the cuts to foreign aid, possibly because if we give other countries less money, then they won't be able to use it to buy so many weapons off of us. So much of our humanitarian aid goes to Yemen, and if we stop sending it there, then those people will die of hunger instead of from the bombs and warplanes we sell to Saudi Arabia, so why would they bother buying them from us? Sadly, the 30 or so Conservative MPs now won't have to prove if they can actually do any rebelling, as the Speaker and Lama Lindsay Hoyle didn't allow the amendment to the bill for Advanced Research and Invention Agency, which would have made the government make up shortfall in foreign aid if it had missed the 0.7% target. Though really what might be a better amendment to that bill would be for the advanced research to be on just how they never have money to stop people dying, but can happily spend that much on a fat pointless boat for a dead guy who couldn't safely drive a car, or on a test and trace system that would struggle to find itself in a hall of mirrors. The government insists the foreign aid cut is only temporary anyway, possibly because if they can get rid of a few more F-16 planes then there won't be anyone left that needs aid and it won't be necessary. If the government had lost the vote, it would have been the third Commons defeat for them since 2019 election, but, I mean, they're not even, the vote's not even happening, nothing's going to happen as a result, why even bother getting excited about anything? Perhaps the thinking is that the government are helping other countries by letting them sort out their own shit by themselves, thereby achieving independence, like how burglars take all your stuff to allow you the freedom to refurbish your home all by yourself. Former Work and Pensions Secretary and woman whose personal exercise regime is snarling at children, Esther McVeigh, said the UK should help other countries trade their way out of poverty. Great plan, that. Maybe they could sell their oil. Oh, oh dear, oh wait. How about if they sold all their gold and wealth and... Uh, Ah, damn. Well, I don't know then. Organs, if they have any left after BAE systems have worked hard on ways to make their countries into dust? If more and more aid was the solution, said McVeigh in an article in the newspaper designed specifically for cleaning Johnson's hole as thoroughly as possible, then large parts of Africa would have escaped all poverty decades ago. You're very close there, Esther, to some sort of realisation, but also, as always, so, so far. One way the Prime Minister wants Britain to aid the planet is by calling for the world to be vaccinated against Covid by the end of 2022, though I'm not sure if he's hoping that now he's full of antibodies he'll be able to excuse any marital affairs by saying he was just helping immunise others as part of the cause. Johnson is urging leaders of all the other countries that bulk bought vaccines so no poorer countries could have them to now donate whatever they have left to the vaccine sharing programme COVAX because there is nothing more charitable than telling a hungry person that they can feast on your leftovers. Is this the government's real plan though? I mean you have to ask when it seems actually their current strategy is just to send cabinet minister and shaved rubber chicken left out in the sun Michael Gove somewhere on holiday and therefore kickstart their attempts at herd immunity elsewhere. Portugal was added to the amber travel list last week but only after Gove had returned from watching the Champions League in Porto and then successfully coughed his way around the capital like a modern-day horseman of the apocalypse pestilence, but, you know, worse looking. On his return to the UK, Gove was told by the NHS app that he had to self-isolate, but he's being exempt on account of taking part in a daily test pilot scheme that only he seems to be allowed to take part of and no, you can't see the results because they go to another lab. Thing is, Michael Gove should have to quarantine, and not just when he has symptoms, but all of the time from everyone for all of our benefits, so this seems yet again very unfair. 
No wonder just a few days ago his royal meltedness was saying that the government have an open mind about extending the furlough scheme because he's already made sure that all the staff anywhere he visits for two weeks are going to have to take time off work. Either because they've caught Covid from him or are just traumatised from seeing his face close up like an acid trip induced live tales from the crypt experience. Apart from Gove's personal efforts, though, the UK has had its first zero Covid deaths day last week, though it was after the bank holiday weekend that was actually sunny, so no one wanted to miss that, did they? There's been no significant rise of people being admitted to hospital in the UK with the Delta variant, which is very good news too. Um, Though it does mean that there's been a rise, it's just not significant. No one's bothered because, again, the weather's nice, so honestly, just leave it a bit. Yeah, I want to pop up my tan before I have to go indoors again. Uh, The Delta variant is the new name for the variant, by the way, as an attempt to remove some of the racial stigma from calling them things like the Indian variant or the Kent variant. So the World Health Organization have said that they're now to be named after letters in the Greek alphabet, which now must have really just pissed off everyone in Greece. The two strands first discovered in India are to be known as Kappa, because it mainly affects people who wear 90s tracksuits, and Delta, because it causes you to have a strong rhythmic pulse and um, a thumbed bass. Hmm. Anyway, from tomorrow, all the over 25s will be able to get their vaccines, which is great, although I do worry that it'll be announced actually they can only rent the vaccine at four times the market rate from someone who got in there early and bought several vaccines all to themselves. Also, UK has now approved the Pfizer jab for 12 to 15 year olds and Health Secretary and Gormless Chopping Board Matt Hancock has said it's important to vaccinate children because the spread from them does impact others. Oh, that's funny. I thought schools were tote safe all along. Well, that is a shocker for everyone, right? Can't believe those selfish kids have changed the goalposts this late into the game. What bastards. It could be some time before the Pfizer vaccine is rolled out to children aged 12 plus, because uh, that will give the government just enough time to blame any rises on them not getting it first and allow all their voters to insist on bringing back conscription from the age of six or something. While children are waiting, the Department of Education and chinless jizz splat Gavin Williamson is stepping up to the mark by insisting kids spend an extra 30 minutes in school a day just to make sure they can provide as much free transport to coronavirus as possible while they can. What will be helpful is the extra funding that's being provided in England of £50 per pupil, which, while considerably less than the £2,500 per pupil in the Netherlands or the £1,600 per pupil in the US, it should be just enough for the schools to buy each and every child one of those pillows they can hug in place of all the social contact they'll continue to miss by spending all their life in school. Johnson has promised that there'll be more school funding to come down the track, you know, once all those kids have grown up and left. And the Prime Minister said that that funding will give the parents the confidence that their children are being supported, something he's never managed to do in his own life. Still, maybe all these schools just need to trade their way out of poverty, right? The Education Recovery Commissioner and Simon Farnaby character Sir Kevin Collins resigned over what he called a damp squib, which was either his view on the funding or he could have just been referring to Gavin Williamson. It's very hard to tell. Collins said the £1.4 billion over three years falls short of what is needed, which is pretty much this government's modus operandi, isn't it? If they were able to take part in the long jump, they'd fall over by the starting line while insisting they still tried their best and deserve a medal. Damp squib would also be a very good way to describe the new G7 initiative to make tech giants pay more tax, though the global reps described it instead as historic, you know, in the way that in many years to come, historians will look back at it and point out it was notable on account of how inadequate it was. There will be a global minimum tax rate in the G7 countries countries of 15%, which is lower than the corporate rate in the UK, and it looks like due to the minimum profit margin, it'll all still mean that the world's richest flatworm, Jeff Bezos, will pay less tax than those kids selling lemonade from a stall at the end of your road. I mean, that's obviously not true as kids don't pay tax, but I suppose neither does Bezos, so actually, yeah, probably fair. Chancellor and man with all the awareness of a blindfolded pheasant on a motorway, Rishi Sunak, said the agreement would make the global tax system fit for a global digital age, which I think means it's been adapted to successfully troll us all.
The UK's own trade prospects are looking up with a trade deal signed with Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein, a country with no airport and that's only accessible via EU countries that any goods will need a tonne of requirements to pass through. Hooray! According to the Culture Minister and Human Embodiment of the Noise You Make Getting Up Too Quickly, Oliver Dowden, the new deal will allow musicians, performers and support crews to tour easily in those countries, which is great because after a year of very limited live performances, it'll be like a gentle easing back being able to perform to countries with such a small population, the crowd will be social distanced by next of location. And as the UK arts world fly off to perform to the big crowds of 12 people or so in Liechtenstein, Brits in Spain have less than a month before they lose their residency status and have to return home. Still, I can't imagine anything more beneficial to our British economy than a boost to our train robbing sector. International Secretary of Trade Liz Truss, a woman with the air of air about her, says the Norway deal is a major boost, but it's hard to know if that's true when she's the sort of person that would consider being on a travelator a fast track to success. Just days before, Truss was over the moon about Kraft Heinz's plan to make ketchup in the UK, which will bring a whopping 50 jobs to the northwest, so won't really touch current unemployment rates. I mean, I guess that's what happens when you put all your efforts into something that's a dip. Trust is also a minister for equalities because by giving her that job, the government could tick their box of employing someone who has a complete lack of spine or brain. And as part of that position, she's been pushing for all government departments to withdraw from charity Stonewall's employment programme, which ensures all LGBTQI plus staff are accepted without exception in the workplace. But the Equality and Human Rights Commission were concerned about its value for money, so they withdrew. You know, unlike the Conservative Party, who in return for heaps of dosh, definitely didn't give one of their donors a position on the EHRC board. Sarcasm emoji. That is far better value for money though, right? I mean, rather than paying money to be more inclusive at your workplace, why would you spend that dosh when, say, disgraced businessman and swelling Peter Crudus received a life peerage for just half a million pounds? That's far better value for money. What's more inclusive as well than giving work to someone who's proved time and time again they don't have the skills or ability to hold down any job or morals? Who needs charity when you know all the right people and they're just as crooked as you? As for everyone else who can't get a job, maybe they should just trade their way out of poverty. Hmm? In other news, the High Court has ruled that the Home Office housing asylum seekers in Napier Barracks was unlawful, but the Home Office said it's disappointing that the court didn't take into account the significant improvement works that have taken place there. It must be very hard for Home Secretary and that feeling when you floss too hard and it cuts your gum, but as a person, Pretty Patel, to understand that cutting off the running water and having Covid run rampant aren't considered improvements to anyone but her. Labour leader and BT commercial pager 34D, Keir Starmer, was interviewed by attention-seeking wattle Piers Morgan because nothing boosts your popularity quite like being next to someone who's even more pathetic than you are. Starmer talked about his life and appealed to the public to let him get out there and take the mask off. And once again, come on Keir, just read the room. Bloody Covid, keep that fucking mask on. Critics praised the Labour leader's performance, saying that he came across as human because he wasn't discussing politics, but I'd argue that he doesn't discuss politics most of the time and still seems like something you'd find at the back of an office utility cupboard. Starmer's message to the Prime Minister was, move over, we're coming, which would probably just make Johnson assume he was at another of his parties at Evgeny Lebedev's. Of course, Starmer's shouts for Johnson to move over are probably just to get Labour more space to attack its allies instead and let the Conservatives get out of the way before they get harmed. Former party advisor and what if Spongebob Squarepants sold out all his friends, Tom Watson, a man who campaigned for gambling reform then worked for Paddy Power and Betfair as soon as he left Parliament, he's accused the Union Unite of playing hard left games because some emails from like three years ago or something were leaked that showed them planning but not actually doing to challenge sitting Labour MPs before then not doing it. Watson, who resigned 
as deputy leader just before the December 2019 election and did loads of interviews about how it wasn't political but it also was totally to do with Labour and was political, blamed the union for sabotaging the election. You have to remember it's only okay to unseat sitting candidates if Watson is part of the coup doing it, otherwise it's just not fair, you know, much like the gambling industry. Speaking of people who you wish did we... Speaking of people who you wish we didn't have to hear from ever again, former Prime Minister and Scar from the Lion King's ghost, Tony Blair, said he had absolutely no sympathy for people who refused to take the Covid vaccine, which I guess puts him in the same category for him as children in Iraq. And lastly, football fans booed England players taking the knee in support of Black Lives Matter at their games against Romania and Austria last week, with many online claiming it was not to do with racism, but instead to do with Marxism. Idiots, it's not Marxist to take the knee, they're obviously confusing it with fair and equal distribution of knees to all according to need. Hey, 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 how goes it? Uh, well, I goes very quickly this week because uh, I've got a real life actual gig tonight to adults and I've got no material, no memory of how to do comedy. Um, I haven't done a gig since December. So I'm cram writing, recording and editing today's episode um, before cram learning a set and shouting at people who will be hoping at least one of the things I say is a joke. Might not be. I don't know. Honestly, as I said, I've not done a gig since December. It'll be interesting. By interesting, probably awful for the audience. Nice for me. I get to go out. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's terrifying. So I'm sort of rushing through this week's episode. There are probably things that I've missed there are probably things that you think that happened on a Monday but it's not in today's show on a Tuesday and that is because it will have already been recorded by the time that there's something that's come out about Priti Patel's involvement uh, in the XR protests I don't know I'm not even reading it I'm not even going to write a joke about it it's not going to happen so super quick um Speaking of things that are awful for audiences, uh, as I was, um, I need to use this admin bit uh, for a part Frank chat and also a part Frankie chat. Um, I'll do the latter bit first, but assuming things do go uh, to a current uncertain worrying plan and on June the 21st, sort of COVID restrictions are lifted, then I'm going to be supporting Frankie Boyle again from the end of this month to mid-August, which is obviously great. Um, I'm really excited about that. That was the the gigs I was meant to be doing last year before they were all cancelled. I'm worried that by saying this, I've definitely just jinxed it. So the gamma variant or whatever will be actively eating people by then um but i'm gonna be doing lots of shows with him and a lot of the shows are on mondays the day i do this podcast and that might mean that episodes are shorter um or they skip a week here or there or whatever um so i'm sorry about that if that happens basically as you probably understand after a year of barely any real actual work i've got to focus on that uh, if and when it actually happens i'm currently hopeful i'm also scared of being too hopeful and so trying to be pessimistic again just to kind of counteract the hope so I can then be pleasantly surprised if it goes ahead. But we'll see, we'll see. So, which brings me to the Frank bit, as opposed to the Frankie bit. Um, I was told ages ago that the clever thing with all promotion is to say that everything's going brilliantly, even when it isn't. Um, But I am too honest for that, and I really enjoy complaining. So, listen, I am ever grateful to you listeners for listening to the show on a weekly basis, uh, and all of you who do share and tell others to tune in, and those that donate and email me, and all of that. Um, Honestly, you are the bestest, and I'm not just saying that. Uh, I mean, I am... I mean, to you, I'm just saying it because it's an audio show. What you can't see is the incredible dance movements that I'm doing with it too to add real gravitas. But what I want to get to um, is that let's 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 do anti-PR for the show. Um, listenership to this show has dropped massively over the last year, uh, which is in part to do with the new ways Acast Monitor listens, and it's part to do with the fact that celebrities are doing all the podcasts and therefore getting all the podcast publicity and sort of being in the top 100 podcasts and no one else can ever get uh, a way in. Um, but it's probably also to do with the fact that I never change the format of this show politics is depressing and no one wants to hear it and really no one's got any time for podcasts uh, because they're too busy screaming or currently being outside in the sunshine and screaming so 
what that means is at some point soon I've got to work out if I can keep doing this show um, yeah, obviously I don't do it for listens I do it because I love doing it but there comes a point where after a year of not working uh, I need to actually pay bills because capitalism is funds um, I know this takes up a lot of my time and doesn't really ever earn me any money and uh, other work is starting to come in that is going to take up time instead and, and does pay me so um, I've got no intention of stopping it yet I kind of want to at least get to episode 250 before I decide um but regardless, in a last ditch attempt, I just wonder if there's any ways to plug and promote this that I haven't thought about before. It's really hard work doing PR. Um, if any of you have ideas or of somewhere that's easy for me to push it if you've got places that you could just post a link to that may push it that would really really help um maybe there are podcasts that you really enjoy that i don't know about that you could bother to get me on as a guest um and uh, maybe i could then go on it and shout about this show if there's any you like just maybe drop my line tweet them and say hey what about having that angry middle-aged white guy on you don't have enough of them on your podcast okay i can see the problem anyway maybe one of you just know a rich benefactor who isn't a tory donor and fancies um paying me to make this every week for some weird reason i mean i doubt that's possible I, I don't know i'm just keen to explore new options as i was hoping this show would at least outlast johnson's time in number 10 um so that's it anyway just let me know your thoughts i thought i'd put it out there because you are the people that listen to this you know what you like you know um how you like it you know if you want me to just if, this might be if i get no responses i'll just be like okay they want me they want me to kill it off i've got it now um i'm also wondering if i should scrap the kofi and acar supporter pages just have a patreon page now maybe just reduce all the ways to contact the show you know streamline the whole thing maybe just call it ppb instead of Parpol bro uh i can't think of any other things i'd do annoyingly with podcasts and well comedy very few people ever tell you how to do it you just have to sort of do it and i am a crap boss and agent so any other ideas or decisions are very very welcomed if you would like to send them in and if you wouldn't um don't in the meantime thank you tons uh, to somebody and kim for the kofi donations this week it's hella appreciated and if you fancy coming to any of the frankie shows i should say i'm doing all the ones at the museum of comedy soho theater and leicester square theater till mid-august and then the brilliant jen brister is taking over because it's nice to share out the work when none of us have had it um, they're already selling out, I should say, all of them, so grab those tickets ASAP too. And also, if you fancy it, completely different, I wrote another piece for Men's Fitness magazine. Uh, I mean, really, yes, really me. Um, this time about health apps. The last one was about running, and this one's about health apps. It's got nothing to do with politics, but it has got a lot to do with me being silly. So I've popped a link to that in the pod blurb if you fancy a read. Right, on this week's show, there is a chat with Jack Brown about his book, The London Problem, which isn't just the nickname I get called when I leave town, and some chat about opting out of Bezos getting all the details about your ingrowing toenail. London, the capital of England, the big smoke which doesn't sound healthy, Londinium, the great when, that place where the term affordable housing applies only to oligarchs and shakes and where you need to take out a loan to buy a beer. It's a sprawling city of everything, and on one expensively manicured hand contains the governing bodies of Britain, the royal family, many national cultural institutions, and to ruin that, the banking sector. But on the other tired, working two jobs and clutching a very expensive travel card hand are the highest child poverty rates in the country, zero hours jobs, a debilitating rent market, overcrowded, underfunded schools, and my grubby flat, which really needs a hoover and is frankly letting everyone down. It's as varied as you like, or in many cases don't, and yet it's often referred to as one homogenous lump when it comes to politics, especially when those politics are trying their very best to start a culture war, despite not realising that a real culture war would probably involve dance-offs and art attacks. 
At the moment, as you are probably aware, London is where all the metropolitan liberal elites control everything from their laptops that they tap away at in their coffee shops. A concept that's quite tricky to go along with when coffee shops are up and down the country um, and you haven't been able to go in them for a very long time. And a lot of people have laptops now and all the people having a go about the metropolitan liberal elites are the actual elites who do indeed live in some of the most expensive properties in London then own several others. But the capital has long been the focal point of ire, despite it also being the place those elites who pretend to hate elites seem insistent to never leave. And there's often been an assumption that the city is its own entity with its own politics and its own ability to suck away funding from the rest of the country. Though, if you were to ask many people in London if that was the case, well, they wouldn't reply because that's how we roll down here. Stop trying to talk to me on the tube. Can't you see I'm busy ignoring everyone? Yeesh. So, is London the problem? Does the city need to suffer before the rest of the country can level up? Or is it just convenient to blame somewhere full of people so desperately trying to pay their extortionate rent they can't respond properly? And exactly how long can my flat go without me hoovering it before I create a new geographical layer? This week I spoke to Jack Brown, lecturer in London studies at King's College London and author of new book The London Problem, What Britain Gets Wrong About Its Capital City. A really, really fascinating read that explains how the city both is and isn't what everyone believes it to be, looks at how successive governments have failed to rebalance the economy between London and the rest of the UK and how actually a lot of us here are much like you lot everywhere else, you know, despite our laptops and coffee shops or whatever. So I asked Jack all about why the elites living in London blame all the other elites living in London and how things may change in the future. Also, as you'll hear, he provides some very grounding reasoning for why my gig in Manchester in 2005 didn't really go to plan. I bloody love you, Manchester. I probably did deserve that response. Here's Jack. Right, Jack, I'm really excited to talk to you today. I'm, I'm a born and bred Londoner, uh, much like yourself. I'm a Finsbury Park boy. And do you know, I, I didn't really realise there was animosity towards London until uh, quite some years ago. I did a gig in Manchester at the Frog and Bucket and mentioned where I was from and got a massive boo and then immediately lost the audience and had to leave the stage five minutes early. Um, and so I found your book a fascinating read and it's something I've become very aware of in later years and something very aware of at the moment when we're constantly being told that London is the home of the metropolitan liberal elites. Um, so now I know your book is, we'll get to that in a minute, your book is full of wonderful nuance about how London is both, both is and isn't what people say about it. Um, but let's start right at the top. Is is it, you know, are, are we all metropolitan liberal elites? I don't really feel like, I've never really felt like one myself. So <laughs> what do you think? Oh, so 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 you're uh, at Finsbury Park. You're four stops four stops up on the uh, Victoria Line from me in Walthamstow. Uh, I grew up in Walthamstow, lived in Chingford for a bit, then moved back to Walthamstow. So I've I've been around the whole world. Um, uh, we are definitely metropolitan, right? If we are born and raised in London, we are metropolitan. Can't argue with that. We grew up in a metropolis. I think the mistake. And it's a deliberate mistake. It's 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 been encouraged by politicians. Is associating the words metropolitan and elite um, together as if they are um, intertwined and kind of you know uh, causal. So there's huge numbers of very poor people in cities, as anyone who grows up in London or any other big city will know. And actually, you know, there's plenty of statistics out there that. Um, underline the fact that if you grow up poor in London you have less money left in your pocket at the end of the month after your housing costs we're not talking about luxury housing we're talking about privately rented we're talking about council housing we're talking about uh, owner-occupied housing whatever sort of housing you have just keeping a roof over your head takes up such a big chunk of your money that you are worse off at the end of the month on average than your poor poorer counterparts elsewhere in the country so Londoners if you are poor you tend to be poorer than people in the rest of the country so the idea that 
the metropolis is full of elites is is misleading. It'd be it'd be pointless to deny there are metropolitan elites. Uh, lots of the uh, the majority of the nation's billionaires, I guess, live in London, right? It's the global city. It's where people come from around the world who have money. But it's a city of great poverty as well. Those two things are intertwined. Um, and so it is misleading. And um, I mean, it's, it's worth worth returning to the, to, the, to the booze in Manchester. I mean, I've got no idea if you got booed in Manchester because of where you were from or because of what you were saying. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what, at what point did, did they just boo straight away as soon as you stood up? Yeah, you... I mean, so this was about, uh, it's going back, well, it must be about 2005, 2006. And I just remember mentioned that I'd come down from, I'd, I'd come, I travelled up from London and immediately got a boo. Uh, and uh, just lots of noise. And uh, from then on, jokes just, I did a few jokes before that that landed. Jokes after that didn't land. And uh, it really taught me then to not mention it in stand-up uh, ever again when <laughs> travelling around. It's, I'd say it's not, it's not as bad now as it was then, but yeah. There's so many people in the north that hate Manchester for the same reason that people hate London, though. You know, Manchester is the London of the north. So that is a, yeah, I'd I'd take it much more personally than that. I don't think it's anything to do with London, Tina. And I think it's about you. (laughs) That's very fair. Don't mean it. (laughs) Entirely possible. I I could be blaming all of that just on the London comment. It could have been absolutely everything else. Uh, Bad gig. Yeah, very true. Yeah, frog and bucket. Damn them. Um, But it's yeah, it's one of the things that you sort of like. uh, You nicely mentioned this in the book as well. But it's one of the things I always think is a lot of the people who say that London is for the metropolitan liberal elite are members of the elite who live in London Mm. and often live in Islington in a massive house and go to Westminster and get cars everywhere. And you know, uh, I sort of always think of people like Philip Hammond who said poverty doesn't exist because he doesn't see it. And I think, of course you don't, because you're always in a car with blackened windows being driven around. So, you know, is it is that, is that the reason why we hear this phrase? Is it or is it a sort of purposefully divisive thing that's that's being said to kind of make people make people hate mm. London, I suppose? I think I think there's there's both. I think your your first experiment explanation <laughs> was a good one um, and, and was a very sympathetic one. Right. So uh, those politicians journalists etc who who do tend to live in Islington but hate the kind of Islingtonian liberal metropolitan elite stereotype um, perhaps only mix in certain circles and don't realize that there is another London out there that doesn't just go you know to Westminster back to Islington back to Westminster back to Islington um, and so they those people could could easily not be aware that there is poverty out there in the city but I do think some of this is much more deliberate i think it's it's much more about um the eu referendum in particular but the 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 kind of wider divisions that led to the results that referendum the idea that uh, cities of which london is by far our biggest city are kind of young more liberal or more left voting uh, and then on the the losing side at the moment of the kind of um the electoral map you know the coalition that won brexit and then has um, won the 2019 general election. You know, the people who put this government in power are not metropolitan people. And so it's quite useful to say that the things they don't like and that you don't like are the views of that liberal metropolitan elite, which is all in London, you know, that place that voted the other way. And that we, the Conservative Party, cannot win in um, or do not seem to be able to win the mayoralty for. So it's, it's a quite, a, it's, I think it's quite deliberate. Um, and it's probably a winning strategy at the moment, right? Uh, it, it seems to have done them quite well. 
But of course, 40% of Londoners voted to leave. Um, the Tories did better than expected in the, in the mayoral elections. Um, you know, these things are not as black and white as they are portrayed, but it is easy to kind of deal in stereotypes. It's good to have a, a kind of an enemy, right? You know, mm. it's, it's, it's that lot there to blame. And uh, I, do feel, I, I do think your sympathetic, more sympathetic portrayal was, was, was lovely <laughs> and possibly, possibly true <laughs> to some extent. Type, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. No, and, and, and you know, people are fundamentally uh, quite nice. So, you know, it's entirely possible it's an oversight, but I think there's definitely some deliberate use of London to mean shorthand for all of the bad things that real people hate. And it's easier than offering solutions to, uh, you know, towns that are very unfairly described as left behind and the red wall and all of these other terms, you know, it's very hard to work out what to do with a post-industrial town where the main industry has collapsed or a seaside town where everyone's going to Spain now. And it's very hard to work out what to do. A bit easier to say, don't you just hate London? Don't you just hate those elites? They're out of touch. We're not them. Vote for us. It it was really fascinating actually reading um, in your book about how, close Londoners views are to the rest of the country on pretty much everything. I think even on things like sort of immigration, only only a few points difference in being pro or against it, you know, and, and in sort of all, all those areas where we're being told that London is more liberal and more sort of lefty and actually across the country, it's, it's generally the same, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, it depends on how you phrase the question and there's been some polling out recently, which I won't sort of call out by name, but there's certain questions around the idea of the, the culture wars and the term woke, you know, where you can ask certain questions and go, look, you know, the, those liberal elites are so out of touch with the rest of the country. But actually, you know, on, on a question like, has immigration been a good thing for the country? There's not a lot of difference in, in, in between London and the rest of the country. Um, questions like, do you associate the flag with patriotism, Londoners tend to have the, the same sort of response as the rest of the country. Um, and those are kind of not things that are uh, communicated very often at the moment, right? We highlight the differences. When you consider that London uh, and Londoners are kind of ethnically uh, much more diverse than the rest of the country, much more likely to have been born, born abroad, about a third of Londoners born abroad, that's incredible. Um, the fact that the views are so similar is kind of remarkable, right? It's a, it's a real story of kind of cohesion of, of, our, of, 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 of our nation and our values. And I think that story is there for, to be told. It's just that the times at the moment, you know, Europe, Scotland, we're just looking for ways to be divided. And perhaps this is just something that happens throughout history. Every now and then politics becomes very fractured and divided. But I do think there's more. There's more there that uh, kind of unites and more in common um, in fact, actually, Londoners, on the whole, uh, tend to be more socially conservative on some issues than than their counterparts really? <laughs> rest in, in the rest of the country. Mostly because of religious uh, reasons. Like if you um, account for religion, adjust for religion, that kind of vanishes. But it's definitely not true that Londoners are like, open the floodgates. <laughs> let's let's have a, a truly, you know. A, the whole world is welcome and the rest of the country is racist. That's just not true. That's not true. There's not that complete polarization. There's subtle differences that you can exaggerate or you can play down depending on your instincts. And I think at the moment, there's a lot of people out there whose instincts are to, to focus on the differences and to, to divide, which I, 
I'm instinctively just just not for instinctively. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 uh, me, me either. And it's it is interesting. I always sort of think that the Londoners, point of view, you know, I've always felt as a Londoner very welcoming to people, but also don't want to talk to any of them. Absolutely, don't want to have anything <laughs> to do with them. I want to sit on the tube by myself. Uh, read my You're book, not alone. Go away. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing, an amazing sort of a mix of mix of views in one go. Um, what one of the one of the I suppose stereotyped uh, views that people have of London has always been that, that London is taking everything from the rest of the country and London's the place that's getting all the investment and getting all the stuff and nowhere else is. And that's why, you know, everyone gets quite angry. That's why I get booed in Manchester. It's not the reason, <laughs> but you know, um, and is, is that, is that true? Does London have to, does London have to lose things before the rest of the country can gain things? Um, well, it's a, it's the most kind of human and understandable, uh, opinion you know that, that that London from the outside it's got crossrail on the way you know it looks very shiny and for most people outside the capital I think when they think of London they think of central London and they think of kind of national well global tourist attractions you know they don't think of necessarily Walthamstow or Finchbury Park to pick two examples that just happen to be in North London which is not very helpful they don't think of like Bexley and they don't think of Dagenham they don't think of Hounslow um they, these these places really do exist. But you, you can understand why people would feel that London gets everything because central London is, you know, a global city um, competing with Paris and Singapore and New York. It looks very nice. Um, but I would say that they are wrong if they think that London uh, London's success damages the rest of the country. I think London competes with other world cities for investment, for foreign direct investment, for uh, highly skilled migrants, things like that. They're not London isn't really competing with the rest of the country because it's just a different type of city, and that's totally fine. We can coexist. Um, they're also wrong if they think that London, you know, is is a drain on the nation's resources because London is uh, with its two surrounding regions the only part of the country that pays more in tax than it receives back in public spending. Um, and so ultimately the success of some parts of London, not all of London, but some parts of London is the thing that drives uh, investment in the rest of the country, pays for hospitals, schools, etc. So I, I, yeah, it's a very complicated thing to, to explain. And I kind of understand that people feel that, well, you've got to do down London in order to uh, raise up other places. But I, I, I don't think that's the case for a number of reasons, some of which I've outlined, but I feel like I'm talking a little bit too much here. So I'm um, pause, pause there. No, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I do wonder if sort of part of it is, uh, you know, to, to, to go back to things that have been said very recently, we've had... Uh, Oliver Dowden, the culture minister, was was saying a whole big thing about too much too much of the the country's culture and museums and trusts are in the hands of metropolitan liberal elite. I think he used the same phrase again, and and how it needs to be more across the country. And, and I wonder if some of this view of London having too much is because we we we've got so many art galleries, we've got the National Theatre, we've got all of that, but then we've also got all of Westminster uh, mm. and all the politics and all the financial set. You know, and it it does seem like we've sort of hoarded it. But I mean, isn't that the same with a lot of capital cities and a lot of of world cities uh, around the planet? It is, and it's a problem in lots of world cities. Um, they do, you know, um, particularly capitals, but uh, those kind of very internationalised, connected, highly connected cities um, do tend to generate a bit of resentment from the rest of the country. This kind of voting pattern that very broadly described as kind of urban, rural in, in, in around Brexit and, and since is at the heart of Trump in America and uh, Macron versus Le Pen in France. You know, this is not a unique 
thing. Um, what is slightly different about us is that uh, as a nation is that we happen to have our, our parliament here, as you say, and our sort of financial centre here, which grew up up the road in the Thames, uh, on, <laughs> on the Thames rather than in the Thames. Um, <laughs> but that's historical accident. And then the city sort of built around that and we've accumulated more and more functions. Um, somewhere like Germany or the States, United States, for example, federal nations, they tend to have different cities, Frankfurt, for the money, Berlin for the politics, in America, uh, Los Angeles is where Hollywood is, is the kind of cultural center in a way, New York for the money, Washington DC for the politics. Um, it's uh, perhaps a little bit to do with the fact that we're very centralized, but it's not deliberate. This is thousands of years of history and it's the way that it's worked out. And ever since there's been a London kind of develop, um, there's been attempts to kind of constrain its growth, to move bits of it out, to try and address this this issue but you're absolutely right to say it's, it's a similar thing to Paris for example um it's a similar thing in many in many uh it's even worse in Tokyo uh even more of a concern to the Japanese this is a, a, a common theme I, or just on that point just the, the point you mentioned about about culture I mean we do have in in London uh a lot of national cultural institutions right? British Museum, things like that. National Portrait Gallery. Um, these are world attractions. These are designed as much for people from France and Spain and Germany and all around the world as they are for Londoners. And when you go to Manchester, where you've got Bood, and we, we, let's keep picking on Manchester, you get some sort of retribution there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it, really. I, yeah. I love Manchester. Manchester, Manchester is a, a really great example of a place that's really on the up as well you know it's kind of not really yeah, in this yeah, conversation about sort of left behind places it's completely different just happens to be in the north um, um but yeah other places that have their cultural institutions there they are designed for the local people they are designed to kind of preserve the history of and you know uh, and the culture of that area and I think Londoners just because we've got the British Museum here doesn't mean the British Museum is here for us and in fact Londoners perhaps lose out a little bit because their culture is not represented in the same way now this is again not deliberate this is just because London's a global city and we need you know to generate that tourism money that pays for taxes all around the rest of the country long-winded answer but I think there's a lot to that I think there's a huge amount to that and it's it's not necessarily a problem that needs to be solved it's some a phenomenon that's ex experienced in other nations um and you wouldn't necessarily say oh god France is going terribly wrong isn't it um or not for this reason anyway Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Jack in a minute, but first... I wonder if one of the reasons the government are against erasing history, apart from, you know, the history of all the shit things they've done in recent weeks, is because if it's erased, then it can't be sold off to big companies. Take the NHS, which is what the government have said to many of those big companies. GP practices have been instructed by the Department of Health to hand over all of their patients' medical history in July. Yes, all of it, from your baby weight to what bum cream you now have to use. Why would they want that, you think, apart from to share it round and laugh at all your needs for bum cream? Well, according to the Department of Health, is to pull medical records onto an NHS digital database for academic and research purposes, just like what the best bum cream is. And hey, that sounds great, doesn't it? Isn't that the dream that the NHS could actually pull all of your information so that every time you change GP, they don't treat you like you've just been born as a giant human adult with no understanding of all the conditions you've had for years. Oh, if I had a pound for every time I've been asked if I know how to use insulin after having been diabetic for 36 years, then I'd have several pounds, but probably not as many as you'd think. A lot of doctors are brilliant. And I feel quite bad that I got those pounds from the NHS uh, when it needs so much money, so I'd probably refuse. Anyway, thing is, as with all things the government are involved with, there's very little transparency about this data grab. In fact, these waters are so murky, there's probably a grime tune about them. Sure, it might all be totally beneficial and brilliant, but it's the way in which the contracts haven't been released for all to see, and the total lack of public campaign letting everyone know that if they don't want the possibility of Jeff Bezos having a folder on his computer dedicated to your eczema, then you have to send a letter, yes, like in the past, to your GP before the June the 23rd in order to opt out. Yeah, you've already agreed to this data grabbery, until you haven't. Amazon does already have access to a ton of NHS data, which is supposedly used to make Alexa better at hearing what your ailment is and then saying, stop crying, it's only a broken face or something more helpful. But that excluded patient records, which is what's going to be collected this time. And while the data is going to be anonymised, everyone's records will have a special code to unanonymize it if it's needed for legal reasons, such as, you know, Jeff Bezos rebranding Amazon with a logo that looks like your knee fracture. But the more data a company has on you, the easier it is to cross-link this with other info and work out just who you are and then use that to target adverts at you, affect your insurance, or just have drones fly past your home with a speaker that has Jeff Bezos directly laughing at your needs for bum cream. He'd do it as well. He's a total bastard. The government tried this in 2013 with a programme called Care.Data, which sounds like the name you'd give a death droid, and that was scrapped because of concerns about security and confidentiality, and of course, death droids. In 2016, Google had a contract with the Royal Free Hospital in London for data sharing, but the hospital failed to comply with the Data Protection Act when it just handed over 1.6 million records without telling patients, and now if you Google those people, it gives you a Google map to their house and all of their credit card details. Okay, it doesn't do that, but it could have done, because it's dojo. And without all the info, and with the government not even wanting to let people know it's happening, it just doesn't feel right. You know, it gives me a funny feeling in my tummy, which I wouldn't trust Alexa to diagnose. NHS Digital did a big myth-busting post on their website about rumours online about how the data would be used, but then they um, deleted it. 
perhaps as an exercise in myth-busting themselves? Who knows? So, while the British Medical Association and Royal College of General Practitioners are putting pressure on NHS Digital to inform people properly about this, um, if you'd like to opt out and avoid Amazon drones delivering four tonnes of bum cream to your house and charging your card for it against your will, maybe, then you can find a pre-written letter to print out, sign and send to your GP at medconfidential.org forward slash how to opt out forward slash. And I'll obviously pop a link into the pod blurb too. Take that, Bezos, you'll never know my bum cream needs. Well, unless you listen to this show, of course, in which case, please end world hunger and then donate to the Kofi. Thanks, Jeff. And now, back to Jack. <laughs> well, so would it solve it then? You know, and, uh, sort of, it's been discussed with politics, hasn't it, about moving various departments to other parts of the country or moving, mm-hmm. uh, I think, like the housing department, some of it's going somewhere to the northeast. Or, you know, there's... And, and with the same with that and and maybe some cult, you know some of the bigger national institutions, would it solve things to move those around the country to other places? I'm quite kind of agnostic about you know you could move Parliament and uh, Parliament you know uh, the building itself is falling into the Thames, it's crumbling, it's very old, uh, it's arguably outdated, although it's got that wonderful history with it as well. It's a great opportunity to move Parliament somewhere else. I think you just move the same problem somewhere else though which is that it's a very centralised government. Um, and I think local, personally, I think local leaders are best placed to kind of drive growth. I think it'd be in everyone's interest if uh, everywhere, towns, cities, regions across the country um, were able to get more startups going, get more skilled people, uh, get, well, get their people more skilled rather, um, become more appealing places to uh, run a business and to live. That's a really difficult thing to do and a really easy thing to do is just carve up something that London's got, particularly if you're the government, you know, a bit of the government and just send it somewhere else. But I don't think that really um, is the sort of thing, you know, putting a, a bit of the civil service into another part of the country doesn't necessarily mean that part of the country is going to bloom and blossom uh, because young people in that part of the country are not necessarily sitting there going, there's no civil servants here. It's rubbish. I'm going to have to move to London. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, that's not what makes a place exciting and dynamic and, you know, uh, enterprising. Um, which is why some of the stuff that's been talked about with skills is really important. Skills are a really good way of doing it. Sort of carving up bits of London and putting it elsewhere. I don't think is 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 the way to go. Um, that's that said, I'm not you know I'm not against it. It's just not it's just not the the automatic answer to a more balanced, regionally balanced country, which I would say again would be good for absolutely everybody. It would take me and your house prices down a little bit if there was slightly less of a oh. magnetic pull towards London. Like London doesn't want. <laughs> constantly expand at the expense of the rest of the country because it gets more congested and polluted and all that it's just that it's really hard to help places where um where there isn't growth develop growth it's just really complicated really difficult um but it is the sort of thing that everybody wants right i think that it's something that um londoners want as well as the rest of the country which again sort of to go back to your, your book is is something that you mentioned i, I don't think i'd realized quite how many times some sort of promise like leveling up has come into politics in the past <laughs> 30 years 40 years you know before and and no one's managed to do it what what is it that you say it's not easy what what is it that should be done what could be done is that i mean could they do anything so it doesn't seem like we we've made any progress really at all well no i'd say, i'd say that we haven't really made substantial progress or when we have we've then changed tack 
Um, so we haven't addressed the issue. There is still a massive sort of geographical imbalance in this country. You know, London and its surrounding regions really dominating in terms of economic activity. Like I say, that's not ideal for anybody. Um, but just because we failed to address that doesn't mean we shouldn't carry on trying. You know, I do support the idea of carrying on trying. And I like the idea of levelling up. It's the challenge is that it's a two word slogan and it can mean a million different things. And it can ultimately, if it proves too difficult, I think it could potentially lead to just leveling down. It might be easier to just knock London a little bit, you know, it might be an easier thing to do than to come up with these very complicated solutions. Um, but yeah, throughout the, throughout our past, uh, in the post-war era, we were very interventionist. We were forcibly putting businesses and people outside of the capital uh, all that led to was London's economy being damaged and its population shrinking, um, but other regions didn't necessarily come up. So that kind of failed, that kind of forcing business, whether it's industry or offices, out of the city centre and away from the southeast, doesn't work because if that's where businesses want to be, then you're working against businesses and you'll have less success. I mean, that's kind of quite a free market, Thatcherite view of the world. But even under the Thatcher government, tried to set up urban uh, development corporations, enterprise zones, these specific interventions in different bits of the country to try and get them to grow. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. Um, sub subsequently, uh, other governments have tried different methodologies. We've constantly been trying. We just can't agree on a solution and we can't stick with it. We had an industrial strategy under Theresa May's government, and that was a strategy and then it was abandoned <laughs> in two years. You know, uh, of course it was. You yeah. know, a, a strategy is not going to work if you, you publish it and then it's gone because the government changes. So it's not to say that something can't be done. For me, as I said already, I think um, it's about devolution to uh, local leadership, metro mayors, strengthening those. The metro mayors we already have have had great success. They're quite well loved. You've seen... Um, including the conservative ones that were re-elected re um, in the most recent elections, they've got sort of tangible successes they can point to for local growth. And you think, well, that's probably the way to do it, right? Trust, you know, trust local leaders, give them a little bit more power, a little bit more control over resources because they know better what their area needs than just giving them, you know, department of paper clips, just move it up there and uh, assume that that's going to, somehow rejuvenate the area and make people's kids want to stay there and not move to London. So I, I really, I'm a big fan of the idea of devolution, although God knows, you know, it's, this is an eternal issue. That's one <laughs> of the things in the book. It's a really complicated issue. Yeah. My worry is leveling down by accident. And that's my big worry that we do silly things. And I, I hope that that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Yeah, that is, that is the fear. I, I mean, I wondered if, if some, you know, if, if London's changing and sort of devolution is happening in a way because of the past year, because, you know, I know people that have left London in the past year. And I think um, you thankfully corrected me before we started recording. So I said 70,000 people, 700,000 people have left the capital um, over the pandemic. And I read recently there was a big place in Canary Wharf that was meant to be businesses. And now because everyone's homeworking, they're going to try and make it into residential instead because they just don't know what to do with the area. Now there's no one there working. You know, the, the capital's really changed in that past year particularly because of home working uh and and the lack of commuting so is is this a natural change to you know how, how london may uh dominate is is, is work and industry going to change because of this and, and perhaps 
you know, tra- go to other places in the country, if not to just at least outskirts of London more. Look, I, I again, look, I'm going to call you call you the optimist again, um, <laughs> because it's not, it's not impossible. <laughs> it's, it's obvious that things have changed uh, in the short term, right? And and it's an estimate the 700,000 people. No one knows how many people have left, but it's a combination of uh, Brexit and coronavirus, right? And and also, you know, coronavirus meaning that people who are not necessarily entitled to uh, medical attention here or have families elsewhere have all left for the duration of the pandemic. No one knows how many people are going to come back. Um, you know, so so we don't know the scale of that. We don't know the number and then we don't know the scale of how many people are going to return. So it is kind of too early to say, um, but it does seem likely that you have slightly less pressure and focus on the city centre in terms of offices. You know, that that what you're describing with Canary Wolf and the city of London and just central London in general, there's going to be uh, different needs afterwards because I think we're going to, we're expecting people are going to be asking for a little bit more homeworking. I think you'll still want to come into the office. Cities will still draw people because it's not just about, you know, uh, the office. It's about going out afterwards. It's about all the reasons why people choose to live close to other people, uh, particularly young people do this. You know, it's not just about work. Um, It's about play as well. And that will continue. But whether or not any of this stuff leads to uh, levelling up, I hugely doubt i hugely doubt the fact that people have left london um will lead to other parts of the country growing instead because i think and this is an an, an instinct again we don't really have the numbers yet but that people have gone slightly out of london rather than have gone off up to the northeast where they're going to start a business instead i think people have retreated to the, the ever further suburbs and are going to expect to stay there if they've left London at all, um, lots of people will come back, I'm sure. But lots of people will also just be, you know, living an extra half an hour away on the assumption that you're only going in two days or three days a week. You can sort of suck that up and that's all right. But I don't think that leads to a complete rebalance in the country. Unfortunately, I wish that that would be that it would just sort of automatically sort itself out. But all of the reasons for being in and around London will endure. It's just how quick um, London bounces back and that's kind of partly going to depend in part only but on on whether this government uh decides that they want to invest almost exclusively elsewhere and at the expense of london if you look at the tfl deal that's just just been announced um it does look a little bit like london's being treated slightly differently to the rest of the country um and that's perhaps you know if that ends up leading to more expensive uh trains less of them and ultimately, you know, that, that, that would mean a decline in London's economy and London could decline again, as it did in the post-war era. It's all up for grabs, but it's, it's ultimately it's too early to say. It's a really long-winded way of saying it's too early to say, Tim. No, no like one it. knows I, yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all very uncertain. I, was, I mean, I'm very rarely optimistic, so I just, you know... It's just a brief, a, a brief attempt at it. I am. Um, I mean, I do. What, if everyone's <laughs> going to keep moving out to suburbs or keep moving out to suburbs, I guess London will just keep growing, keep growing until we take over the whole country, and then everything will be equal, uh, get equal treatment on account of it being uh, the United Kingdom of London. That's mm. one way. One way for it to happen, right? That is the yeah Tokyoization. Can we call? It, can we call it that? Um, I mean, they've been talking about moving, uh, moving the, the uh, national government out of. Tokyo for a very long time and they just can't they can't do it for some reason it's just just keeps no progress no progress whatsoever I mean 
uh, we've got a green belt, which is fortunate, yeah. right, around the city, uh, which is kind of, for some reason, completely sacrosanct and no government would dare challenge it. And I think uh, that will stop us from properly sprawling. But you could see yeah. some of that. You could see some of that happening, even if it doesn't mean built up areas, just means people living further and further away and expecting to come in on the commuter trains. You could see some of that happening. I'm going to stay where I am, though, if I possibly can, if I can afford it. I like yeah, it. Yeah, that's what, well, well. I didn't. I didn't divulge earlier. I'm a Finchley Park boy, but I'm I'm currently in North Finchley because uh, Finchley Park mm. has uh, long priced me out. Uh, I I would love to go back, but it is not. My family's still there, but um, me, I had to. I'm I'm being forced further and further out until. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'll be clinging onto the. I'll be living in the green belt fairly soon, probably in a tent. That's probably <laughs> where I'll be. Um, well, Jack, thank you. I mean, your your book is an absolutely fascinating read, and I, I highly uh, recommend it to all listeners, Londoners or not, definitely uh, have a read of it. And um, I just wonder, apart from yourself and your book, what other writers, websites, resources would you recommend that listeners follow for political anis- analysis and opinion? Who are the people that you like to go to uh, for information? Um, is there anyone that you could recommend? Yeah. So. Um- if you are interested in uh, in London specifically, but actually I think is you know the, uh, a lot of the kind of London and the rest of the UK narrative, the kind of leveling up narrative stuff, I think people around the country should be reading Dave Hill's on London page. Um, he was a correspondent for the Guardian. He set up his own web page. He's very much a kind of mythbuster kind of uh, kind of guy, and I think he's 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 phenomenal. Um, I. I don't know if I'd want to name other people. Actually, I don't know if I'd be putting them, uh, if I'd be complimenting them or uh, making them guilty by association. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a big fan of uh, uh, Professor Tony Travers at LSE and LSE London, everything that they do, um, because I am so London, London focused in my job. Um, I should should say that, you know, lots, lots of my family moved out as well. You know, this is what happens over time. I'm not completely obsessed with this place. And I definitely don't think it's better than anywhere else. But at the moment, I do feel like it's getting a bit of a, a, a bad rap. And so it's more of a response to that than saying, you know, London is better than ever, anywhere else. Um, Centre for Cities do really good work. Centre for London does really good work, which relates quite well to Centre for Cities. Uh, these are a little bit academic, but these are also quite accessible sources. So I'd recommend all of those. Um, and of course, your podcast, obviously. <laughs> of course. Thank you. Thanks to Jack for having time to chat. Um, his book, it, as I said before, I, I'm, I'm very bad at finding more descriptive words, but he's fascinating. That's the best word for it. It's absolutely fascinating. I picked it, I read it in like an afternoon. Um, it's a brilliant read of myth dispelling and also confirming, and I definitely recommend picking it up. Uh, it's called The London Problem, What Britain Gets Wrong About Its Capital City, and is available from all of those dwellings where books lurk. Uh, bookshops, sorry, that's what they're called. Jack can be found on Twitter at Jack W. Brown and at the Department of Political Economy at King's College, where he lectures too. Big thanks to Asher at House Publishing for sending me a copy of Jack's book and for putting me in touch with him. Of course, if you've got big shiny ideas about who or what I should talk to on this here show, then you can let me know what they be at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can just give all your recommendations to your GP, not apt out of the data grab, and then very soon I'll start receiving them as Amazon recommendations at the bottom of whatever it is that I buy. I promise I don't go there. I promise I support independent shops. Shit. Anyway, as always, it's much easier to email, isn't it? 
that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Au revoir, Alfida saying farewell until, you know, next week. So it's not a goodbye, it's just go away for a bit because I've got other shit to do like this gig tonight. If you enjoy the time we do have together, though, why not share it? Why not share that time? I mean, it's 2020, it's all cool. You know, do tell other people to have a listen. Do give the show a review on Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, or anywhere they've taken the word pod and put a word after it that doesn't quite go. And if you can afford to, please sling me a quid or two to the Kofi, Patreon, or Acast supporter sites too. Cheers, big ears to Acast, my brother last sceptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when the government announced that rather than give any aid at all to developing countries, they'll just offer them apprenticeship programmes to retrain in cyber. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Amazon Bum Cream. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.